welcome to the Fertility Conversations podcast. The goal of this podcast is to create more awareness about infertility and to provide support to people trying to conceive. Thank you for listening today, and we hope you will be encouraged. And now, here is your host, Ola. Welcome to another episode of Fertility Conversations. Today, I'm joined by a lovely guest, Ndiga Imwepere. She's a fertility lawyer in Nigeria, and she'll be answering our questions relating to alternative paths to parenthood, including fertility treatments and surrogacy. So welcome, Ndiga, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yay. So to start off, we usually say, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, my name is Ndiga Imwepere. Um, I'm a dual qualified um, lawyer. I'm um, qualified um, in Nigeria and England and Wales. And so I, I um, hold practice rights in both countries. Um, so I handle um, legal matters in Nigeria and the UK. Um, I shot a little quite a bit between the two countries. Um, my, my, um, my, my postgraduate research was in ICT and telecoms law. Um, I'm also very passionate about development issues to do with the global South and Africa. And um, I quite, I happened on fertility law about seven years ago um, when I decided to take up an internship in a law firm in London. And we started seeing quite a few um, Nigerians in the diaspora who had left the UK to come to Nigeria for fertility treatments, to come for adoptions, and then they were getting stuck. And I got curious to why would somebody who has the right to world-class treatment in the UK and in Europe leave the UK to come to Nigeria to undertake fertility treatments? And that was how I stumbled on the fact that um, Nigeria is a, a fertility treatment destination in its own right. But people don't know about this because we are all so close-lipped and very circumspect about things to do with infertility and assisted parenthood. And so I found that... Um, in Nigeria, there isn't a legal framework about assisted parenthood. So when I say assisted, no, there's no legal framework. I'm talking about specifically about donor egg, donor sperm, or surrogacy. But however, the practice is affected by existing laws and, um, and regulations that exist in the country. So um, my particular area of interest is, is um, um, transnational fertility law where the intending parents come from one country and come to Nigeria for their fertility treatment and they intend to take the child so conceived back to their home country, mostly um, the UK, where I hold practice rights and where I can advise. So I generally, um, my approach is to adopt international best practices, um, adopt the UK approach, what happens in Europe and try and transpose that to Nigeria because um, I know that even though people think that there is no regulatory or legal framework on these issues right now, things change in very unexpected ways. And um, I always like to err on the side of caution. And when I'm advising clients and when I'm drafting agreements, I always draft with challenge in mind. How do, if something happens in the future, what kind of documentary evidence, what will we need to do to make sure that my clients are safe? And very, very often, not just they are safe from mitigation and exposure to risk and blackmail, but also that the child being born 
is also protected and that we are acting in the best interest of that child. Because when things go wrong in the future, at the center of that storm is an innocent child who didn't ask to be brought into this world. And there's an intending couple who have only, the only thing that they did wrong was to want to have a child of their own to love and take care of. So these are the things that guide me in my advice clients. Thank you so much. And it's amazing to listen to you, to see all the, you know, things that we might not even think about um, that could come up. So it's important. It's great to see that you're actually trying to foresee what could go wrong and taking that into consideration when you're advising your clients. Now, of course, you noted that Nigeria is a big destination for fertility treatments. And you, you talked about the fact that you're passionate about donor uh, gametes as well. So for anyone, you know, thinking of these coming to Nigeria for donor sperm or donor eggs, what are some of the things that you'll let them know that they need to be aware of when, you know, when coming to Nigeria for such treatments coming from overseas and planning to take the child or children back to the UK? Yeah, that's a very um, important question because I find out that not many people are asking that question in time. You should be asking that question before you even start thinking about coming to Nigeria. Now, because of the experience that we've had in Nigeria, where things are rather fluid, if you walk into a fertility clinic in the UK, you can almost at least 98% be sure that that uh, facility is licensed. But you can't have that certainty in Nigeria. It's a complete new jungle out here. So the fact that they have a website, the fact that um, they are talking to you, you can identify some people, doesn't necessarily mean that that facility is registered or licensed. And so the first thing I will always tell anybody coming from abroad for treatment is to do a little bit of due diligence on your treatment center of choice. Ask questions, ask other people. Um, I know people don't talk about infertility and hardly you rarely find somebody coming to online and say, praise the Lord, I just gave birth to triplets or twins born by a surrogate, or I did IVF, or I used donor egg, or I used donor sperm. That's not the way we roll, you know? (laughs) So you would most likely, I always tell people that, look, even if you are not um, active online, I find that the best places to find information are online communities curated by people like you, where people feel safe and are open about their experiences. So that would help you identify a good treatment center. Now, um, I always recommend as well that before you choose a treatment center, you um, take time to find out whether or not that treatment center is a member of AFRH, the Association for Reproductive Health, for, for Fertility and Reproductive Health, which is the only organization in Nigeria for fertility clinics. Quite a few of them will put it on their website that they are members of AFRH. Some of them will not. So it will be worth worth your while to get onto the AFRH website and ask them, I'm considering so-and-so treatment center. Are they members of yours? Now, the reason why um, I always make that recommendation is because um, there are no laws about these practices, donor egg, donor sperm, and surrogates in Nigeria, but AFRH has decided to self-regulate by adopting almost completely wholesale the regulations and the regime that operates in the UK as a voluntary measure. So at least they are trying something. Um, Also in Lagos State, the Lagos State has its own registration regime of fertility clinics. 
but it doesn't really go very far into donor egg and donor sperm and surrogacy. But it does say something about um, expertise levels, equipment, facilities, and minimum standards and things like that. Now, Lagos State is approaching it with a view to driving out the quacks. And that is also right. something that is very important for somebody coming from abroad to make sure that they don't fall into the hands of the quacks. Because there are quacks in the market who would offer you fertility cycles at a fraction of the cost and seem to be able to, seem to be able to produce evidence that they produce results. But it's not all that the way it looks. Now, as somebody who is using donor egg and donor sperm, especially if you're coming from the UK, you want to also check your own immigration status in the country where you're coming from, in, in this case, the UK, and find out what the legal requirements are in your country about surrogacy. Do you need to register before you leave your country? Is there some permit or approval process you need to go through? Does your country, in some countries, surrogacy is illegal? Um, in some countries, surrogacy might be legal, but there are certain special requirements for you to be able to pass on your citizenship to a child born abroad. These are very important questions. Sometimes people only ask those questions after the baby has been born and they have been denied a visa or a passport. You need to ask those questions before you leave because you don't want to be in a situation where the child is stuck in Nigeria and you, uh, you have to go back to work. You have to go back to the country yeah. where you came from. That is not anybody's idea of having a family. You want your child to be with you in the country where you came from. So you have to make sure what is the view in your country, your domicile, your country of residence regarding use of donor egg and donor sperm and surrogacy and before you begin to look about what is happening in Nigeria. So although we don't have a specific legal framework for it in Nigeria, there are laws which do affect surrogacy, donor egg and donor sperm, which you need to be aware of. So, and then another thing also you would also need is, you will also need to be able to clarify to yourself what is important to you. Um, the reason why I say that is people have different reasons why they want to have children by assisted means. Now, if you are somebody for whom a having a genetic link to your child is critical. If you are married, then it means that either the husband uses his sperm or the wife uses her egg. So sometimes you might leave, you might leave your, your, your country, your residence country, your country of residence and come to Nigeria with the view that we're using our eggs, we're using our sperm. But a few cycles into the treatments, things might change you might have an adverse diagnosis. For instance, you might have a diagnosis where that says that it is not in the, in the intended mother's interest to carry the pregnancy, in which case they will need to consider a surrogate. Very few people leave abroad and come to Nigeria with the view that they want to use a surrogate. They are, they are forced to use a surrogate because they didn't, things didn't go the way they planned. Everybody, every, most women would like to carry a pregnancy by themselves. So they don't arrive at that decision of using a surrogate voluntarily. Most times it is a choice that they have to take. So, and then the same thing also applies to donor egg and donor sperm. You, you have to begin to imagine that, okay, if I have to use donor sperm, it means that if I'm a couple, if I'm married, that child is not going to be genetically connected to my husband. What would be the implications going forward? If, it's a, if it is a woman who has 
um, a bit of a challenge with producing eggs and they, they have to use donor egg. How will the intending mother feel bringing, uh, raising a child that is not genetically hers? They are not issues for some people, but they are issues for some other people. Um, I know cases where when they find out, when the doctors recommend donor sperm, that might mean the end of the relationship or the end of the marriage because the man cannot envisage that they would use donor sperm and the wife is not willing to um, accept that they remain childless. So you have that conflict of intentions and values which might lead to the breakdown of the relationship. That is, that is unfortunately quite common. So I will always say that one of the things that you're looking for when you're asking questions about the treatment center is to ask questions about their counseling provision. A whole lot of specialized counseling is required. It's an emotional roller coaster on the scale you cannot imagine if you've never been through it. So I would always ask questions. Are they registered AFRH members? Are they licensed by Lagos State if the clinic is in Lagos State? What do the what do what do the what do the tribes say about them? You know, do people say good things about them? Um, some other things that you might be thinking about if you're more detailed, do they have ISO accreditation? Because there's some ISO accreditations that have to do with fertility clinics. These things refer to how they gather and store and use garments about quality control, about um, um, ethical concerns in, in sourcing these donor eggs and donor sperm, about um, their procedures in the lab to make sure that um, things are done properly, things are not mixed up, that the wrong egg is not given to the wrong person and things like that. So ISO accreditation can help to satisfy you that, okay, they are working to some internationally recognized standards. So, and then of course, the big one is also make sure that um, you find out about the costs to make sure that you don't get stuck. You're prepared in the long haul. Uh, people can get so desperate that they're willing to mortgage houses, sell property and things like that. You need to have a, at least a reasonable idea of, okay, how much a cycle costs. Sometimes you might be lucky, one cycle might be sufficient. But generally speaking, three cycles per couple is about average. How much is a cycle? Are there discounts for subsequent cycles in the clinic that you're dealing with? Are there payment plans, for instance? And then, of course, if you're using donor egg, donor sperm, what are the screening processes? How do they acquire these guns? Where do they source eggs from? Where do they source um, sperm from? How much information are you going to be getting from the clinic about the people who, where they are sourcing these things from? Who is the person who's going to be responsible for sourcing the, the surrogate? What processes did they go through? And then from a legal perspective, get, legal, get good legal advice. Get good legal advice, it's, it's absolutely necessary. Before you go anywhere, or once you've started that process and it told you, um, we recommend donor egg, we recommend donor sperm, we recommend surrogacy. You need to speak to a lawyer to advise you about two sets of laws. One, what's the legal position in the country where you live? If you go abroad to do surrogacy, use donor egg or do donor sperm. And then also, what is the legal position in Nigeria? Because in all of this, the most important consideration for an intending parent is how do I become the legal parent of this child that is going to be born through whatever means? And they are very important 
rules that you need to be aware of. Now, if the, um, <clears throat> the process isn't managed properly, you could be open to accusations of human exploitation. If you recently, in the recent past, you've heard stories about uh, um, an unfortunate couple who had a child and who was abroad and they sourced a kidney donor from Nigeria and took the person abroad and they landed in a whole lot of trouble. And I'm just thinking to myself how that could have easily been avoided if they had spoken to a lawyer first. So the fact that there's no um, legal framework in Nigeria about the, the, the sourcing, or it's maybe not very strictly regulated about the sourcing of donor organs in Nigeria, doesn't mean that the same case applies in the UK. So you, you have to find out because when you're engaging in transnational surrogacy, which is what we're discussing, for instance, or transnational fertility treatments, there is an engagement between the legal systems of two countries, the country of residence of the intending parents, and then the, the treatment country, which is Nigeria. So you have to sort out the legals in two countries. And in many cases, you might end up having needing two lawyers, a UK fertility lawyer, because you're the, the, it's not just that you're going for treatment, but that fertility treatment has implications for nationality law, which determines whether or not your child will be able to, will be able to pass on citizenship to your child. It has um, implications for immigration law, whether the child will be, able to, will be able to take the child back to the UK. It has implications for a lot of other things. So you, you need to, it has implications for the past, the pathway that you would take in order to take that child back to the UK, will this child have to be adopted? Will this child be able to take advantage of a different track that is specifically designed for surrogacy in, in the UK? So these are uh, questions that you will need to ask. And I always tell people like, you would most likely need two sets of lawyers. You will need lawyers on the UK side, you will need lawyers on the Nigerian side, unless, you find someone like me who's licensed to practice in both countries. Yeah, which is amazing. So thank you so much for that detailed response. And when you spoke about that in terms of donor eggs and donor sperm, so if a couple came from the UK to Nigeria and you know, in the process of their whole treatment, they were advised that they probably need both donor eggs and donor sperm. And so basically like an embryo adoption, for example, or both gametes being a donor, Will that be a problem for such a couple now trying to take the child after born, being born back to the UK since the child is both donor eggs and donor sperm? Yes, it would be, well, let's say it would be more challenging than normal. Transnational fertility treatments are challenging because of the engagement right. between the legal systems of two countries. Uh, this is why it's a bit more challenging. Um, you have to understand that there are some concerns about the use of donor egg, donor sperm, and surrogacy, because on the sharp side of it, when it's not properly done, there's some, there's a lot of potential for human trafficking and human exploitation. And remember that we're, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is to bring children into this world. Yeah. Now there are a lot of there's a lot of sensitivity internationally about the trafficking and adoption and movement of children across borders, and some of these. Um, treaties and international um, instruments. Unfortunately, Nigeria is not a signatory to. So being a signatory to those um, instruments would probably would, would say something 
gives kind of seal of approval to that country saying that, okay, we've looked at this country and their processes are up to a certain minimum international standard. Nigeria doesn't have that seal of approval because we're not signatories to some of these um, international instruments that have to do with the movement of children. So that places more of an onus on the person bringing a child from Nigeria to satisfy, you have more hoops to jump through. Right. Now, if you are, <clears throat> luckily in the UK, um, if you are resident in the UK um, and you go abroad to have a child through assisted means, if at least one of the intending parents is genetically connected to the child, there's a separate track for that. And that's what we call, what okay. is called parental order. Now, what the parental order does is that the parental order indirectly makes the laws of the UK applicable to the country where you're going to and specifies the standards that you must satisfy for you to bring the child back through that route. And one of the requirements is that there must be a genetic connection between that child and the in, at least one of the intending parents. So that means that you must use either the intending father's sperm or the intending mother's eggs. Unfortunately, if you don't, if you can't satisfy that genetic connection test is quite rigid. What it just means is that if you use a, an adopted embryo, meaning donor egg, donor sperm, donor embryo, it means that you will not be able to go down the route of parental order, which is a relatively straightforward process. So which basically is an application to the high courts of England and Wales or Scotland saying that you have been to a third country, um, you have satisfied all the requirements and you're basically asking for the court's recognition of your parental rights in that child born in another country. So you see, it's, it's right. a very powerful mechanism for the UK to impose certain minimum standards on that other country indirectly yeah. by the intending parents need to satisfy those requirements. Now, if you can't satisfy that, there are other requirements as well that need to be met for you to go by route of the right. parental order. Well, I won't go into that. But the most critical one re in relation to using donor garments is that if you use a donor embryo, you will not be able to use a parental order to get your child back to the UK. You will have to adopt the child. Now, sometime right. last year, I think in May or March, there was <clears throat> a regulation that was passed in the UK suspending adoptions from Nigeria for reasons to do with maybe cases in the past where they found that it was difficult to verify the authenticity of documentation and whether or not yeah. cases where we found out that people had brought in children as adopted as adopted children but really intended to use them as domestic servants or sex slaves and things like that. So there has been a suspension on adoptions from Nigeria. So what it means is that if you use a donor embryo, you would have to go by way of adoption. You will have to adopt the child in Nigeria, and you also need to adopt the child under UK law. And at the moment, there's an adopt, there's a, a suspension on adoption of wow. children from Nigeria. Now, there is room for an exception, but you need to, um, well, it's quite a steep hill to climb to, to convince the authorities that you are eligible for that exception because if you look at it critically look at i mean i mean look at it from the public policy from the home office perspective 
There are thousands of children in the UK looking for loving homes. So if you if your heart is open to an adopted child, you, you can adopt one in the UK. Why do you have to bring one from Nigeria? A child is a child, yes. You know, so that is a policy perspective, right? So I think it's when when um, couples arrive at that stage where they are told that the only options available are to use donor egg, donor sperm, or in extreme cases to use donor embryo. Somebody needs to go back and reconsult a lawyer, the lawyers to say what will be the legal implications of this legal option on my plans to take my child back to Nigeria. I have clients who have been stuck in Nigeria for that reason because they didn't take advice before they started. And there are a lot of other documentary requirements, there are procedural requirements and so on that need to be satisfied. You need to be, you need to be aware of that, or all those implications of that treatment choice before you start. Yeah. Because it's not, I don't think anybody comes to Nigeria and has it at the back of their mind that they will be okay if their child is stuck in Nigeria. No, nobody does that. Yeah, yeah. And I've had cases where um, one of the spouses has had to relocate because one of the requirements is that um, a child has formed a parent-child relationship with the intending parents. Now, how do you establish that if the child is in Nigeria and you're in the yeah, UK? Yeah. You know, so it's sometimes it can involve um, very significant sacrifices, which I think yeah. could have been avoided if they had had the proper legal advice. Because the the clinicians, the doctors in the fertility clinics will just tell you they are focused on one objective and one objective only, that a child will be born. Whether it's donor egg, donor sperm, surrogacy, or donor embryo, it's not really the problem. Their job is we want to help you to make you become a parent. Then after that clinical objective has been satisfied, then that's when the lawyers kick in to say, okay, having brought this child into existence, or ideally these plans to bring a child into existence, what will be the legal pathway to making you the legal parents of the child? So yeah. th that's the critical question that people need to ask. How do I become the legal parents of the child, both in the treatment country, Nigeria, and in the UK, where I intend to take my child back to? Thank you for sharing that. That's, that really is so important. So I think, I mean, definitely one of the things we're getting from this conversation is the importance of seeking legal advice and ensuring that you get someone that really knows what's happening in both countries or get to separate lawyers if that's not possible. So thank you so much for sharing that. And of course, there's some people when we're speaking about donor garments and there are some people as well that may be single uh, and uh, thinking, well, they would like to have a child uh, maybe a single uh, woman and thinking they wanna have a child and don't want an anonymous donor. They, they have a friend that, you know, seems like a nice guy, looks good, um, well-educated and he's willing to provide the sperm and he doesn't really want anything to do with the child. He just wants to help them out as a friend. So for that mm -hmm. person, I've heard quite a few stories like that. In, in your opinion, how important it is for that person to be getting legal advice and will, you know, potential issues that could arise from that situation, even though it seems really 
uh, simple and just two friends trying to help each other out. Yeah, I, I get a lot of, a lot of inquiries. The Turkey based business, right? <laughs> now, yeah. um, where do I start? Okay. There are two <laughs> kinds of um, <laughs> sperm donation, right? The two kinds of sperm donation, anonymous and known sperm donation. Now, in yeah. anonymous, in a, when you have an anonymous sperm donation, most likely that sperm is going to be sourced from a sperm bank. You get non-identifying um, information. He has brown eyes, he's six foot tall, he's a hunk, he has an IQ of XYZ, looking in yeah. uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, he's, he's, he's white, he's, called, he's Caucasian, he's Spanish, he's African. You know, you get non-identifying information and then you yeah. use it to make your choice. Now, another protection that using a scram bank gives you is that under UK law and according to international best practice, there is a presumption that since that sperm was sourced from a sperm bank, that there is no intention on the part of the parties to establish a parent-child relationship with the child that is to be born. So that person is strictly speaking a sperm donor. And it's only when the child becomes an adult, sometimes 18, sometimes 21 in different countries, then the child can, on their own, make their own private efforts to identify who their birth father or their the sperm donor is. And I'm sure you've heard about um, D23 and me, um, yeah. DNA profiling services that are now available. You can buy a DNA profile kit online and try to trace your heritage. And there are also organizations that are trying to help donor conceive children find out who their biological parents and genetic parents are. So you have the donor sibling registry, which helps people. If you, if you find out that you were conceived through donor garments, you can go and register, you give them a DNA profile. And if there's anybody else on the register who shares genetic history with you, heritage, you know, heritage with you, you'll be notified that based on the profile, we think we found a half sibling, we think we found a mother, a biological mother, a biological father, and things like that. And it, it's, it's the stuff of movies. Lots of movies are, are, are being made and have been made about the kind of surprises that this turns up. So why I'm saying this is that even though you might source your sperm or eggs from a, a bank, because of the technological advancements, that anonymity is not completely sealed. Because if, if somebody is determined, they might be able to find you. Although it might not be happening in Nigeria, but it's happening in other places. And Nigerians move around a whole lot, you know this. So that is anonymous. So if you decide to source your sperm privately, you through somebody that you know, you lose the protection that you don't lose that instant presumption that you don't intend to create a parent-child relationship with that person. So what do you do? If it is actually the intentions of the parties that there should be no parent-child relationship, you don't want this man in your child's life and you don't want him in your own life as well. What they will need to do is to draft an agreement to that effect. But you also need to understand that in the UK, you don't have 
it's not conclusive. Let me give you the reason why. Um, the UK, in the UK, unlike in Nigeria and in America and some other developed countries, there is social assistance when uh, parents run into financial difficulty. So you can apply for benefits, you have child benefit, you have child tax credit and all those kind of things, which you can apply for, you can, you can, if you have a child, you can apply for a council flat, you can get housing benefits and things like that just because you are a parent. Now, if you apply a single mom, you apply to the government for financial assistance for your child. One of the first questions they're going to ask you is where is the father of the child? Because under traditional circumstances, both parents should contribute to the welfare of their child. Now, if you source, if the child's parent is in the UK, the first presumption is that the, the government shouldn't be paying for something that the, the father of the child should be paying for. So it now behoves on the parent, the mother, to provide conclusive evidence of the fact that there is no father in right. the picture, which will allow the states to step in. Otherwise, you might find yourself in a, in a pickle where it is not clear to the government that there is no father, and the, that and the father is like, "Well, I told you that I didn't want to do this." Yeah. Because circumstances can change. I mean, look at what happened over the pandemic. Nobody, that was completely, I mean, if there was one adjective that was used during the pandemic, almost every day you put on a TV or radio is unprecedented. Yeah. You know, nobody imagined the unprecedented circumstances that the pandemic brought on us. I mean, this interview with you would have been unthinkable before the pandemic. You would be I like, know. I, want to, I want to see you in person. <laughs> I remember how when I used to try and tell clients I'm in the UK and I'm, somebody wants to consult me and they're like, oh, I'm not paying your consultation fee if I'm not coming to your office to see you in person. But no, we do it all the time. People's yeah. views change. Things have evolved. You know. So I was... Another thing that can also change is people's motivation. Today, this man is... Um, in a situation emotionally where he feels, I don't want it. This woman, do whatever you want it. I'm helping you, right? We're doing yeah. it as pals, mates, and we're helping each other out. But in the future, his, his motivations can change. He might say, you know what? That's my child. <laughs> whatever we wrote, whatever we discussed, that's my child. And I have a right. Notice the change in language. First is, I'm helping you. Then next, it will be, I have a right to have access to my child. I have a right to have a relationship with my child. And if you're faced with that kind of situation, what do you have to fall back on? To, because when, this, when such matters appear in court, which they often do, the overriding principle that is guiding the judge is, what is in the best interest of the child? Is this in the best interest of a child to be aware of the exact details of their, their conception and for them to have the benefit of a father figure in their life, even though this was not within the con initial conception of the parties? And more often than not, the judge would be like, I don't see how this child is made worse off by having contact with their biological father unless he's a sex offender, a criminal, and a generally very bad man. You know, 
it will be it, it could be argued that it's actually in the best interest of the child to have a father figure in their life, even if the, the, the biological the genetic father, the sperm donor, is not in a relationship with the biological mother. So you, you have to consider the eventuality that people's intentions can evolve over time. So today the mind might say, God forbid, I don't want anything to do with you and this child. But in five years, 10 years time, who knows? You know, I always think for myself, I'm not the only guy I was five years ago. I would like to think I'm a better version, but I'm not the same person I was five years ago. So who are, we, we evolve every day. And people's emotions and motivations evolve. And that is why it is really important that I say, go for counseling, both of you. And your intention should be clarified. And as much as possible, those intentions should be, what we say in law, reduced to writing. Let it be there in black and white. This is what Mr. Labaja, the sperm donor, is expecting. And this is what Mrs. Labaja, the biological mother, is expecting out of this agreement. Is it something that can be reopened in future or is the agreement final? You know, things like that. So and this I should think, be done by a lawyer as well, right? Not just friends writing letters. It should be done by a lawyer and they should, I always recommend that there should be some counseling involved. Unfortunately, people think that, hey, but if I just found a suitable male specimen and I lured him to a hotel at the appropriate time, I wouldn't need to jump through all these hoops. But unfortunately, yeah. you know, these are guards that have come into place because of technology and to prevent abuses from happening. So if I always tell people, say, look, get an agreement and decide exactly what we are doing, then maybe it's better for you to do it the traditional way. It's also an option as well. You don't have to go the high-tech variant. You don't have to go the high-tech route because if you do it, if you say you're entering into a so-called spender, there are certain, it comes with some legal baggage that you need to be prepared to unpack because they will affect you going forward. So I think in summary, that's what I would say. I, I would say to, um, I'm beginning to see a lot more single moms who are going out there, they're doing it for the girls, you know, they're making their way on home without um, um, a man in their life, a partner, a husband. And then they've come to this realization that, okay, um, I can do this by myself, you know? Um, I don't have to wait. The biological clock is ticking. Um, it, it is doable. It, it's completely doable, you know, but you just need to be aware of the legal implications of going down that parental path. Right. Thank you so much. That really, really helps. And I'm sure lots of the listeners hearing that are also now better equipped with information and things to consider. Now, I know, of course, you spoke about the anonymity uh, for donors and the fact that we all know that there's a lot of DNA uh, checks constantly going on and agencies helping out as well. So in your opinion, and there's a lot of talks about should children conceived from donor gametes be told or not and uh, different countries, uh, there's a lot of push, in, especially in the Western, some Western countries that children should be told because they could find out. And of course, in places like Nigeria, the concerns about that and what it could implications that it could have within the family or things like that in your opinion what are some of the you know 
risks or perhaps pros and cons of telling or not telling for those that don't want to tell? Or what is your opinion about it? <laughs> it's a tricky question. It's, it's a tricky question. It's a tricky question. Now, if you look at it from the point of view of the technological advancements and the fact that it might not be completely possible to guarantee that the child won't find out or that the child will not find out in ways that are far from ideal. Yeah. Say for instance, now a child is brought up to to be, of course a child will say, this is my mom and this is my dad. And the child will just assume that this is my genetic mother and this is my genetic father. Something might happen in the future where they find out that that is not the case in circumstances that are not entirely within the intent, within the parent's control, that can happen. Sometimes there might be an accident and somebody needs a blood donation, for instance, and an organ donation. It, it, it can be, it can come out in different ways. Some, sometimes people might want to apply for a visa to go to a different country and um, a DNA test might be necessary. And then this suddenly comes out. So, you know, a child can go for a DNA test for any reason. I know uh, a particular couple that as a, as a prank or something, um, somebody gave their child a DNA test as a present when they turned 18. Like you're 18, you're an adult, you, didn't, you deserve to know yourself completely inside and out. And the child took the test and then found out that their parents were not their biological parents. You know, so I think I, I sympathize with parents who find themselves in that situation. But I think there's more to be gained by being open, by disclosing to the child at some point. Now, the argument is if you had told the child from day one that mommy loves you, daddy loves you, but you didn't use mommy's seeds or you didn't use daddy's seeds, the child grows up, it kind of normalizes it for the child. Yeah. So if they find out later, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I already knew that. It's just like, you telling Obama that he has big ears. It becomes yeah. a fact of life. Yeah. It's not something that can hurt them in any way. Yeah. You know. But if it is kept secret, then the question is, okay, at what point do you tell the child? It's not exactly a legal question, although it might have legal implications. When you if you even decide that you want to disclose the child what their genetic heritage is, at what point do you do that? Some people will say, do it when the child is young. The child just accepts it as a fact of life, like Obama's big ears. Or you tell the child when they're a little bit older, when they can appreciate it. I find that the biggest problem is really the attitude of the parents. They, it's because it's a reality they haven't really come to terms with themselves. It's something that you bury way away and get on with their everyday life as if it's, you know, like the elephant in the room. So it's, it's the parents who really need more counseling than the children because... The child will just accept it like, oh, well, yeah, that's an interesting story, mom and dad. Well, you're still my mom and my dad, and you're the only mom and dad I know, and you're the only mom and dad I need. And the child goes off to play. Like if you, if you disclose that to a child when they're very young. So it's now a matter of timing. I would say, given the things that I've seen in the recent past, I would say, tell your child. Um, there's a lot to be gotten by. It's just the same way people have, there's been a lot of debate about if and when to tell your child that they are adopted. You know, if the child is in a 
a supporting and loving home might not matter too much. Um, someone asked me a question. Oh, I don't want to tell my daughter. She's a teenager. She might resent me. I'm like, I've got a teenager. She resents me already. <laughs> Six. It has more to do with the stage in life that they are. Sometimes my daughter is giving me real bad side. And I'm like, if you look at me like that again, I'm going to poke your eye out. And I know she's completely mine. You know, so there's a lot of fear and anxiety. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be accepted. The, the parents don't want to, to be rejected by the child. But I think if you go from the base of consolidating that, look, this is your home. This is your mother. This is your father. Whatever the DNA test says, we will love you even if you're being an absolute pain in the derriere. It makes it easier to, to handle those kind of questions. Yeah. So as, unfortunately, people would have to choose. But I would say, though, if, the, if you decide to wait, don't keep it too long. And um, tell the child and give the child some time to process that reality. Yeah. And it's easier if they grow up processing that reality rather than, boom, it's your 18th birthday. We have something to tell you, Tomiwa. Yeah. And thank you so much for also highlighting. I mean, that was really, really profound. But I think also highlighting the fact that a lot of times it has to do with the fact that the parents also haven't processed it because that's really huge, right? Because in reality, they haven't dealt or grieved the fact that they had to go through this path, you know, not what they expected. So I think that was really, really helpful and really profound. So thank you so much for sharing that. And of course, I know you also deal a lot with surrogacy and... Nigeria now is a big destination for that again, because in comparison to other countries, it's much more affordable, quote unquote, it is still expensive, but cheaper than some other countries of choice as well. So and if for someone considering surrogacy um, and agencies can still seem a little bit more expensive than perhaps having a family friend or someone knows someone that could help you out and, um, you also thinking, well, if I go through the agency, uh, then I'm not really sure what the surrogate is eating or whatever, you know, how they're actually treating themselves during pregnancy. Perhaps I can keep them in my house, in my BQ, uh, and ensure that they're being fed properly, right? Stop there. <laughs> yeah. This is red. Stop. <laughs> Before you go say anything else, putting a surrogate in your BQ is a no, no, but keep going. Yeah. So, you know, them thinking that me having that surrogacy in my space is better because I can monitor what they're eating. I can ensure that they're not stressed out. I get a driver, someone to help out, you know, for someone thinking of that versus using an agency, please tell us why not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay from a legal perspective right okay let's start from you from a okay i'm a self i'm a self-confessed control freak hmm? me self-confessed control freak i like it my way yeah. and i prefer i do it my way 
I would prefer to do it my way instead of sending someone to do it my way. So I am a recovering control freak. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Now, there are a lot of people like me who want to manage the surrogacy process themselves. They want to know what kind of water she's drinking, what kind of air she's breathing, what kind of bed she's lying in, what kind of food she's eating, everything. What kind of people she's talking to. They are people like me. They are control freaks. <laughs> now, it's not entirely bad to be a control freak. Do I, aren't I nice looking? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Completely bad to be a control freak. But the question I always ask people, what is the trade-off for managing your surrogate yourself and putting your surrogate in your house? Now, from a legal perspective, there are many disadvantages. And I am convinced that the disadvantages outweigh the advantages. Okay, this transaction lasts about 10, 12 months, mass, from the selection process of the surrogate to the preparation for implantation, embryonation, the pregnancy for nine months, she gives birth to the installment of her money, she gives you the baby and job done. Ideally, this is what we envisage in a surrogacy transaction. But if your surrogate has become into, into your household, it means that it might be difficult for that transaction to ever have an end. Because she knows your house, she knows your children, she knows your house helps. She knows your car numbers. She knows where you live. She knows where you work. You know your friends are. She knows your church. Every time she has a headache, you will hear about it. Let's be honest. Let's be. Most people do surrogacy because they are motivated by financial reasons. You, you, that's just the truth. That's a very small um, I'll help you out. Right? There's a reason why it is most on the notion the social are uh, doing surrogacy. And it, it's very, sometimes we forget. You, do you live in Lagos or do you know Lagos? Lagos, yeah. I okay. live in Lagos, yeah. Your, your typical surrogates in Lagos will be coming from Ajangbadi, Ajebule. Those kind of, right? Right? So basically, now, more low income. You put her in your night. Exactly. You take your surrogate, you put her in your nice house with a split unit room, rug on the floor, DSTV, the house girl at her beck and call, a driver to take her wherever she wants to go, probably a nice car with AC. Because you want her to be comfortable while she's carrying your baby, yes? An SUV, a nice car, everywhere she needs to go. She's living the life of her dreams for nine months. And then, after the baby is born and the baby is handed over to you, you send her back to a jambaj and you really think she will never come back. That's not how human beings function. That's not how human beings function. The girl is like, wow, Omo, see how people live. See life. 
oh my God, God, why didn't you bless me so that I'm like these people? And then sometimes some resentment comes into it. Like, what's so good about these people? Why shouldn't I have been the one who lives in BGC or Lekki or VI or Ikeja? How are these, why, why? People can have all kinds of Christian and non-very Christian thoughts. By the time you expose them to the details of how the other, and then money runs out pretty quickly. No matter how much you pay, the money runs out pretty quickly. You know, it's easier to pay than to make money. And you really think that she will never come back to say, oh, have a headache. Oh, I have malaria. Oh, my mother is sick. Oh, my children don't have school fees. We haven't eaten today. Oh, our rent is due. It doesn't, it's, it's things like that only happen in fairy tales. I actually know a couple where that had to house, sell their cars, change their staff, change church, and move somewhere else because the surrogate kept them back. Kept coming back for more money. So, Yes, it's, it's like, it was like an open-ended agreement. So if the surrogate, if you manage the surrogate and there's no anonymity, the fear is that this is an agreement that will never end. And in fact, at some point, it will become like someone speaks a tap on you and they'll turn the tap anytime they feel the need. Because really, if you look at it critically, Reproductive capacity is it's because the intending mother doesn't have reproductive capacity, the ability to do what she needs is already. Can you put a price on that? You can't. And the surrogate knows that. And if she knows who you are, there's always a threat of just on social media. I would tell your friends that Junior, I was the one that gave birth to Junior. Because people always keep it a secret. Yeah. So you 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 pose yourself to an agreement that never ends, can never be completely executed. You expose yourself to blackmail. If you're one of those people that is going to be very circumspect about the, the details of the conception of your child, the details of the conception of and the mouth of a surrogate that can be disgruntled and spill the beans on you anytime, that's not very conducive to your blood pressure. No, not at all. So when, I, when people suggest that to me, I'm like, <laughs> red cup, stop. just yeah. stop. Because it, it, it places you in a situation where you, you, you lose control. You lose control yeah. over the whole process. So I think that there are a few surrogacy agencies in Nigeria. Mm, I can count the reputable ones on one hand, but there are some repeatable ones out there. I would say, join the, the Association of Recovering Control Freaks headed by Undiga <laughs> and hand over the process to a surrogacy agency because the grief is more than the gain. Yeah. Thank you so much for giving us a lot of insights in that because I know that comes up a lot. And and for people listening, because, you know, you have given us a lot of information, people listening and wondering what services do you provide? So if you just wanted to highlight a, a few of them that people can reach out to you for 
in the fertility space that you can help them with? Well, my, my services as a fertility lawyer are advisory services, first of all. Um, a lot of people come to me, oh, what's your advice about this? I provide advisory services. I provide advisory services in respect of the legal implications of the difference pathways to parenthood, if you like, especially when you're using um, donated gametes and surrogates. Um, I, I advise them about the implications for nationality law, immigration law, especially if there's a transnational element, if you're going to take the child back to the UK, or and I have some other colleagues in the different states in the US who help us to not, um, tidy up the things if the intending parents are taking the child back to the States. Right. So um, I advise them about the law on their, the, the country, their resident country, especially if it is in the UK. And then I also advise them on the Nigerian side of things about how do you become a legal parent in Nigeria? What processes do we need to go through? Um, what things you need to avoid? Um, documentation requirements, I also sort those out as well. Um, in the case where we have um, somebody coming, intending parents coming from the UK, we work both ends. We do the UK side of things, and we also tidy handle the Nigerian side of things, so that at the end of the day, your child joins you in Nigeria. So there's advisory, there's documentary, there's transactional as well. Um, I also advise clinics, a few, a few fertility clinics in Nigeria, about how they can... Um, meet international standards in their okay. operations and how they can make sure that from there's compliance built into the process. So not just at the end of the day, a client comes along and says, oh, I want to take my child to the UK. That no, the process is already designed to be compliant with whatever regime that operates in the country where the intending parents are coming from. So those are some of the things that I do. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And what's the best way for people to reach you? Um, I am, um, oh gosh, I just had a blank. But the best way to reach so me by email or? You can reach me by email. You can reach me by WhatsApp. Um, we, uh, my law firm um, is called Okamara Law. Um, so that's www.com. And then I also have a consulting firm where we do more broadly consulting, advisory yeah. services for um, assisted um, reproduction, which is um, Auxilia Parentis, which is a handle that you're using, Auxilia Parentis. Um, do we have a website? Not sure. Yes, we have a website. <laughs> yeah, but um, I'm, 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 we are on Instagram, we are on Facebook. Um, yeah. Okay, that's excellent. I, Thank you. Yeah, I usually handle most of the messages myself because of the sensitivity. Right. Um, so most times if you send an email or a message, you'll be chatting with me. Okay, that's wonderful. And that really helps because I think people want to know that that information is getting to secure uh, and someone they can trust as well that, again, yes. like you rightly said, it is right sensitive. Yes. And even for people that are doing surrogacy within Nigeria without traveling anywhere, you can assist them with that as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yes, there is, so, there is a higher motivation, you know, to make sure that you're doing everything correctly if right. you're taking the child abroad. But even if you are intent to stay in Nigeria and there's no transnational element, I always recommend that people do the right thing. It's the same risks. 
the only thing that occurs in transnational you know, fertility treatments is that the child will be taken abroad and you need to do the legals on, in two countries. But even if the child is going to stay in Nigeria, you still need to complete the process of making sure that the, the intending parents are become the legal parents of the child because people tend to get a bit confused. And my, my biggest problems, I have an easier time to sell my the need for my services to people who are taking the children abroad than people who are staying in Nigeria. Yeah. Because they're like, no, we're not going abroad. We don't need a visa. We don't need the foreign passport. It's just Nigeria. And um, I can always go to the registry and get a birth certificate without a lawyer, without going to court and all that. And I'm like, a birth certificate does not transfer parental rights. Only a court order can do that. So if the child is born to the surrogate or whatever, and you take custody of the child, Having custody of the child doesn't mean that you're the legal parents of the child. It just means that you're in custody of the child. And all legal systems start from the same default position. Motherhood is assigned by gestation. That woman who does the nine months with the stretch marks to prove it is from the initial point, the only legal mother of the child. Then subsequently, irrespective of whether it is not her egg or where the egg came from or where the sperm came from, because motherhood is assigned by gestation. So what it means is that after that child has been born to the surrogate, you have to go through a legal process to terminate her status as the biological mother of the, as the legal mother of the child and make yourself the legal mother of the child. Now in Nigeria, the only way you can do that is either you go and get a court order to recognize your interest in that pregnancy, or you go through an adoption process. And what that process does is it says you are the woman who gives to this child, and you are the only woman recognized as the mother of this child. We hereby terminate your rights permanently, and we are transferring your parental rights to this woman or this couple who now become for all intents and purposes and irrevocably the parents of the child. Now, if you don't go through that process, you might still be having, you have custody of the child, but you're not the legal parents of the child. So you might have a birth certificate that you went and got from somewhere or from a hospital, but you are really not the legal parents of the child. And the danger is, you know, I always tell people, the wonderful thing about the world is this one thing about opportunity. That lady who is in such a situation where she considers only the one of the best she can make her life better is to become a surrogate, things can turn around. She might find herself in a situation where she realizes she shouldn't have done that. Or, you know what? I was exploited. Oh, you know what? I wasn't treated fairly. Oh, you know what? They took my baby, but... They didn't do the right things. That baby is out there. That baby is still my child. You can imagine if somebody finds, somebody who you thought was a regular kind of person suddenly finds a change of circumstances and they find themselves, see, or VI or lucky. And they find themselves in a situation where they don't have any other children. Their mind will go back to that child they gave away. And all they need is somebody to open their eyes to the fact that, you mean that's all they paid you? Or did you ever go to court? That child is still your child. Did you ever go for counseling? Did you have a lawyer to advise you about what you were doing? Oh my God, you mean they did that to you? And what happens? You suddenly find yourself on the receiving end of allegation of human exploitation. 
and human trust. Because if you don't do this thing properly, there can be a lot of exploitation involved. One of the seminars that we're planning to give is targeted at potential surrogates. Because some people don't even know what a surrogacy agreement is. Some people think that a surrogacy agreement involves sex. Yeah. Yes, there are some sad intending parents who would go and say, we're entering a surrogacy agreement and they'll tell the girl, make yourself available when you are fertile. You know, people need to know that if anybody sleeps with you in the name of surrogacy, that's not surrogacy. And I've actually told a client who came and asked for a surrogacy agreement to be drafted in those circumstances. I told him, oh, congratulations. I said, why are you telling me congratulations? I said, ah, welcome your new year, won't know. You had a lot of fun sleeping with her and she's giving birth to your child. She is the mother of the child, it's her egg and it's yours. And so, gather ah, your people low to go and pay her bride price. She's your new wife. Because traditionally, a woman who gives birth to a child outside wedlock for a man is in a stronger position than the wife in the house who is childless. Yes, and so technically, you're asking this girl to lend 100,000, even if it is 1 million, in exchange for her otherwise status as so you want her to take 200,000 and return to the from when she came and hand over her genetic child to you in exchange for 200,000. Doesn't that sound like child trafficking and human exploitation to you? So I would say no, you have to understand the context in which treatment is taking place. and make sure that things are done in a way that if that accuses you of something because they want to put a squeeze on you to extort more money out of you or blackmail you, you have the answers for that person. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's really important that people get aware, even aware, like you said, for intending surrogates, but even for intending parents. So. If you're having those webinars, I think it'd be really, really helpful to people in general just to have a better understanding. Because I think a lot of times we just think, well, just get someone to help you or, you know, traditional surrogacy, uh, do it the traditional way. So it's important that we as a society get more aware and knowledgeable and educated so that we're making informed choices. So thank you so much for planning that uh, webinar and please do it as well for intending sur um, parents that want to use surrogate. So everyone is better informed and we don't, we're not making mistakes and um, doing things or getting blackmailed as well. So thank you so much. And, You're welcome. and as a wrap up, is there any other information that you'd like to provide? I mean, it has really been an informative session, so you have shared a lot, but if there's anything else or final words that you'd like to share before we wrap up? Well, I would say, um, when you're going, I mean, not nobody dreams of having to resort to assisted means to become a parent. It's a process. Um, if, you, if you feel bad about it, don't beat yourself up. It's natural. Even before you begin to think about the legal side of things, um, get counseling. It can be a very lonely journey. Get counseling. It's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Counseling. Before you do anything, try and Take a deep breath and ask questions. 
Because there's a time that because you're so desperate, infertility can make you so desperately unhappy. You know, it's like your your misfortune is out there for the whole world to witness. After nine months, no child's pregnancy. You make you so desperately unhappy. Try and stop and ask for advice. And don't abdicate the responsibility for informing yourself doctor. You need to inform yourself for yourself so that when you come to talk to someone like me, you know if I'm telling truth, if you don't need to go to talk to your clinician, your clinician, you know that it's because you're the only one who knows what your goals are. And you are the only one with the pain points. So you, you need to equip yourself with a lot of information and ask questions. If your clinician is not willing to take your questions, maybe you should look for them. Be more than happy to address your concerns. Ask questions. If you're not satisfied, ask more questions. Ask a lawyer. Make sure you're finding out what your implications are, where you're coming from, the, your country of residence, and get a somewhat clear idea picture of what is what happens in Nigeria. They're not really in Nigeria, but there there are some. There are some. And always remember that if you're talking to a, a Nigerian fertility lawyer, they're advising you based on what is happening in Nigeria. Yeah. They're not advising you about what is happening in the UK. So I know that people will say, oh, I've spent so much money on IVF. Ah, uh -uh, lawyer again. Please, I'm making your budget for a good lawyer. Budget for a good lawyer. And imagine that you need a lawyer from the UK end and you need a lawyer from the Nigerian end. It's, it's important that you, you realize that this is a new area of law. Things are evolving every day. I, I was just looking at my files last, the letters I wrote to some people last year, and we were talking completely differently about children that were born with donor embryo. And now we find ourselves in a situation where that is a completely different proposition right now because of a, yeah. a simple administrative decision that was made in the UK. So it, a lot of us are not even aware that there's such a thing as fertility. So I, I had so many discussions. They said, what kind of lawyer do you say you are? You are a fertility. What is that? You know? Yeah. And some people are like, Kundi has come again. Always playing and, play and pranking. She's coming <laughs> and pranks, you know? Yeah. But it's, I, I always tell them, you know, it's the thing. It so it's, it's a lonely journey, but there is help out there. Please take time to educate me. Sending you a lot of love and light. If you're Thank on the you. fertility journey, you're not alone, and I pray that the time will not be far when you become a parent yourself and you return to work wherever you came from or wherever you want to be with your child in your arms and joy in your heart. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was really, really sweet. And it's really been amazing having you on here today. It's been so informative. You're really, really amazing. Uh, and of course, fertility lawyer. You're the first I've heard of in Nigeria, so we're really blessed to have you here and to have that you're actually able to work here in Nigeria and the UK. So thank you so much for all that you're doing, and we look forward to the webinars as well. It's been a pleasure having you on, uh, on here yeah. today, and uh, we look forward to having you again in the near future. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for the valuable work that you do. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us this week on the Fertility Conversations podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Fertility Conversations. If there are any topics you would like to have discussed, please send an email to fertilityconversations at gmail.com. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. Thank you again for listening. Take care of yourself and do stay hopeful.